You're listening to Heart of the Hunter, a serialized fantasy novel set in Koronai, the magical country. This story was written and performed by Sam Chuck. For more information about this podcast, including upcoming role-playing game releases associated with this novel, check out heartofthehunter.com. Now, please enjoy Heart of the Hunter, Chapter 18. The Irregulars were used to strange fights. Being dropped onto a battlefield through a trigate, the massive stone triangle anchoring one side of a mystic bridge to the battle zone, was nothing to them. That it brought the commanders into a place without knowledge of the surrounding terrain was a serious detriment, one that needed to be rectified through scouts' reports and a quick proof of the area maps. Reports of skirmishing contact with the nail were coming back to the Master Chief's tent throughout the day, and he was constantly updating his battle plan, redistributing his strength. Battle Rain, his second, interrupted his musings with a wry grin. Got most of the stringers sorted out, sir, but we got a few of them who've gone AWOL. Graham took a bite out of a chunk of cheese and fresh bread and swigged some cider directly after. There's always a few, Bottle. Uh, Just uh, cross them off the paymaster's list, and we'll have done. No sense spending time looking for them. They're probably drunk in some tavern somewhere. Bottle Rain's Lunargenti eyebrows were expressive. He did not approve, but he wasn't about to cross Hornboot. Aye, sir. Thank you, sir. Hornboot slammed down the tankard of cider, empty, and dabbed at his beardless chin with a napkin. But all, I think it's near time to move out. Scout Sars says we've located the main group not far from here. I want you to bring Corps A and B to bear from the south. C and D, I will take them from the north. We'll see if these nail have learned anything from the border wars, eh? Battle Rain de Corsi gave his commanding officer a quick salute on his way. Aye, Master Chief, so we shall. Hornboot grinned a feral grin. Good man. Leonard didn't even breathe hard, keeping up with the go-disc Sneeve was using. The hyena man and his diminutive gangster friend had evaded the outer pickets of the irregulars and were following Sneeve's tracking stone through the forest paths. Why are we leaving the battle again? I thought you were going to make sure those nail tongues don't win. Leonard growled as he loped along. Sneeve chuckled. No way. They aren't going to win. The Irregulars got that covered. Did you see how many they had? This whole thing is planned. It's a planned sucker punch. The boss shouldn't have worried. Anyway, we gotta find that deadbeat. And the tracking stone is getting dimmer and dimmer as the day goes on. Following the stone, they soon came to a pair of trees. 
A dead Tangresh lay nearby, the flies already buzzing around him. Mist still clung to the ground here. What is this? Sneeve whispered, holding up the tracking stone and looking at the pulse of a jewel set in one of the rings he wore. Magic? Leonard nodded. Yes, magic. Let's go if you want to catch them. What? Sneeve said, eyes slitted. In there? He pointed toward a dark tunnel through the mist that blended into the forest, but was clearly not part of it. You heard me. Come on, Leonard said, and ran forward. Sneeve cursed and leaned forward, his go-disc propelling him into the darkness. It wasn't long before they started to see red eyes emerge in the darkness around them, and strange creatures begin to take shape just behind. They poured on speed, the two of them, feeling the tunnel in the air closing behind them. Sneeve dropped a white fire bomb behind him and slitted his eyes. The explosion boiled away to nothingness as the tunnel's collapse ate it, but a quick glance around behind him saw no pursuers. Leonard dropped to all fours to put on extra speed, and Sneeve dropped his center of gravity to lean down and grab the ridges of the go disc. This was a very dangerous maneuver scouts learned to use only in the case of emergency, for an overbalanced go disc could fling itself out from under a rider, and he would subsequently be shredded by, in this case, stones, underbrush, and other sharp things hidden in the forest floor. The two traversed the length of the tunnel as it collapsed, dodging snarling spirits that tried to eat them. When the collapse reached them, they both fell into total darkness, and the forward motion came to a sudden, abrupt stop. It was not difficult for him to lose his way into the trees, especially not with his chameleon cloak. Once there, he stood still in the shade of the forest and closed his eyes. Brotherhood, hear my plea, Corwin said, wrapping his fingers around the amulet on his neck. Phobius, are you there? Presently, a powerful feeling of presence a sensation of warmth and regard flowed over him. Yes, came the inner, mellifluous voice of the dream mage to Corwin in answer. What may we do to aid you, Master Bard? I have need of transportation. I sense my prey getting away from me, and I am worried that I will not be able to catch up. Is there any way you can transport me to the place my heartsong melody guides? That is difficult at best, Brother Corwin. But perhaps I could do you one better. Meditate. Listen to the song of the heart's rhythm for a time, and call me when you feel it is most advantageous. Then I will send you to your heart's desire through dream. I will do as you say, Archmage. Thank you for your assistance in this. The Brotherhood, as always, stands ready to protect and assist the Bardane, Master Corwin. Garal be with you. The mystery keep you in its wonder, Corwin said, 
releasing the amulet. He sat in his hiding place in the trees, watching the battle begin. Covering himself in his chameleon cloak, he sat cross-legged upon the ground. Unlimbering his instrument, he plucked a few strings of the harp and let those vibrations carry him deep into himself. Soon, the rhythm of the harp began to swell and thrum within him, and he grew still. While he rested there, none would see or bother him. The Battle of Timril Vale started in skirmishes and confusion near noon. The accumulated warriors of Gaikul, united in their purpose by Ulin and her Kuun, launched themselves without mercy at the softling mercenaries they discovered had somehow arrived overnight. These mercenaries were not scores of Cydalian recruits like last year. Instead, they were all battle-hardened, heavily armed and armored, fully trained combat veterans. Furthermore, they were used to fighting nail tongues due to their participation in the Yarian Tangreshi uprisings. The nail were in full battle rut, bloodlust sent on the wind, driving their fellows to the blood red tides of rage. A phalanx of Tangreshi scouts ran into an irregulars picket just before noon. Nearly all of them were slaughtered, but one escaped through stealth to take word of the mercenaries to Ulin. The war chieftain of the Deathbirds, a Tarask of great strength and cunning, named Chartuk, presented himself in front of the Swamp Queen in earnest. We hear word of many warriors. How can this be, Mother Lunin? You said that there were but four soldiers and some gypsies. We did not think to fight a host of trained warriors. Ulin whirled to speak to the chieftain. You will do as you're told, or I will kill you and put the next in standing in your place. Eyes wide with fear, the char took, the chieftain bowed. It is as you wish. But we have never been successful against the well-armed, rested softling mercenaries. Over long pitched battle, we silence! The swamp itself will rise to fight for us. Ka'un will bring the battle directly to them. Go now to your men and prepare them. Before I have the idea, you are cowardly. The chieftain bowed and departed, his throat closing with fear and a sense of doom surrounding him. He knew that his men were doomed, but to do otherwise was to lose all standing all esteem among the tribe, and that would be worse than death. This was no battle of glory or honor, the Battle of the Plain. There were no long lines of chivalric warriors standing across from each other. The main force of the Nail never directly engaged the amassed forces of the Hoskins Irregulars until they had killed enough of the raiders to piss off the leadership. Exuding their battle rut, the Tarask war leaders incited their people to the ecstatic state of Burstrang, 
meaning they lost all conscious thought and just became an angry mob of vicious killers unconcerned about their plight. The Irregulars had been schooled about this, though, and formed shield walls, overlapping, giving the nail nothing to bite, nothing to scratch. They forced the enemy to throw their number over the walls, where they were quickly and easily dispatched. Ranks of heavy gunners and heavy infantry opened up on the amassed, raging mobs. A sorcerer's platform went up in the midst of the irregulars' van, and from that tower, made of gunmetal gray force, came evocations of death and destruction. Power lanced and bloomed around the Ka'un. Its bulk and fearsome roars made it their main target. The troops, having been drilled and trained for this very thing back in the Yarian border wars, did not allow the taunts of the nail to push them over into a charge or some other action that might cause them to abandon their strictly disciplined shield wall. In the end, although the blood of many of the irregulars stained the ground that day, the nail were unable to withdraw, unable to rally, and unable to succeed in breaking the hateful tactics of the irregulars. When the leaders were dead, the lesser nail began to lose their battle frenzy, and, one by one, began succumbing to their accumulated wounds. There were still raiding parties that came up while the irregulars were cleaning up the battle, still attacks that burst forth without warning, but by the middle of the afternoon, the bodies of the slain littered the ground in all directions, and carrion birds from the swamp had begun claiming their due. After the sun sank below the tree line, Master Chief Hornboot saw clouds threatening from the western seacoast. Everywhere you looked on the battlefield, there was death of nail tongue. And Sidalians, Lunargenti, even some Amishkin, Yarian, Changian, and Blackpoolian dead. The irregulars' healers stood over the laid-out bodies outside the healers' tent and quickened the still living back to life, restored organs pierced by spears, brought soldiers back from the very veil of death. The Swamp Queen, Uline, was not found among the dead, but that was not surprising to anyone. The wily shaman had gone to ground, using the power of the swamp to escape. As the irregulars counted their dead and healed the still living, she watched, hidden in a tree. Her beautiful familiar had not survived the attack, however, and the magical sanctity of her ritual circle had been violated by the presence of that green ward. She could feel him out there in the swamp, seizing the reins of power that allowed her to control things, felt him breaking apart carefully constructed flows and dams of energy that she had spent years perfecting. He was dismantling her power structure, and there was little she could do. Her power had been mostly expended in the fight. But while there was life in her body, she would not give it all up. Clutching a black scroll case in her talons, she took the form of a marshland's hawk and took to the sky, 
using the twilight shadows of the, of the dying day to fly directly into the realm of shadow, where none but the bravest would dare follow her. She would not long forget this day, nor would she give up her dream of Gaikul. It would not be possible, perhaps, to revive it in this area, but there were other places and other tribes willing to believe in something greater than themselves. She would survive, which was the point. Uline would never give the tree-keepers the satisfaction of their revenge upon her. This was her solemn vow to herself, as she felt the warmth of the world slip away into the realm of shade. The Ka'un had stumbled into the heart of the swamp, wounded. His wounds weeped brackish water, and now and again an eel or two would slip from within his guts and slide limp and lifeless to the ground. He could not tell how many iron dracon bullets riddled his body, but they weren't the cause of his current distress. The feeling that the swamp was itself dying was foremost in what remained of his mind. That, and the feeling that he would not accomplish the vengeance he had asked for against the ones who killed his master, Jack. He searched around with his newfound senses for the one who had done this to him, made him Ka'un, the shaman. But she had fled the scene, and the swamp itself cried out for her, he could already feel the cold runoff from the north start to flow through the aquifer, lowering the temperature that was vitally needed to maintain the diversity of life within the swamp. It felt like ice on his heart. He plunged into his chest with his own claws, rooting around and finding one or two lodged bullets, picking them out with long taloned claws and dropping them, forgotten, into the muck. The buzzing in his head seemed to resolve slowly as the pain he felt sharpened his senses. He felt like something that was crawling over his pate, just like he used to feel when the fleas got too bad. But this time it wasn't so mundane as, the, as fleas. The feeling was more of a sense, a sense that the Ka'un discovered he could tap into. He sent his perception into the very heart of the swamp, and discovered quite to his surprise that he could see from many places at once. His mind flailed at trying to understand all he could see, but there was a benefit to the madness which had already infected him for so many years now. He knew how to focus on what was important. Here, in the dying light of the day, here, in the aftermath of a terrible battle, where everyone who had fought with him had lived and died to defend the swamp, there remained only one drive that would keep him alive. But in order for that drive to push him forward, it would require him to find the target of his desire. Seizing the reins of power left behind by his dark mistress, Ka'un tapped into all of the things that flew in his swamp. His wordless command was simple. Fly forth. Fly forth and look for the ones he sought. Report back to him while he rested. Then, at his command, with the crooning sound of a million reverberating wings, the flyers of the swamp took to the air. 
The black wave of his insectile sight became a ring, streaming in all directions. He would find them. He would find them, and he would have his revenge. It was Leonard who picked himself up off the forest floor first. True, he immediately regretted that. He could feel his bones knitting back together slowly, painfully, and he gritted his feral teeth together to try and ignore that agony. The healing brought by being life-bound was not a sweet healing. It was always painful, and it seemed to suck away years of his life as it did so. But it was better than the alternative. Leonard could see a battered go-disc on the ground near him now and broke out a hyena grin. However bad he had it, Sneeve must have had it worse. He heard the sound of Sneeve's neck and backbones popping into place with grisly clarity, and it wasn't the first time Leonard had to shake off pangs of hunger for Sneeve's flesh. He heard Sneeve cursing and knew that his life-bond magic was still active, as well. While his own body was coming back together, he had time to think, to focus, but his mind just kept going back to the life bond. The blood ritual, some say a blood ritual built on demonic magic, of the life bond, was a rite of passage in the Honorable Old Masters. It was not given lightly, and much was then expected of you, and the Masters, some say the mayor himself, could revoke it at any time. That was the worst part. At one point, Leonard thought it was the best thing that had ever happened to him. But that was before his first death. His fifth death, the one that had just happened, was five more than he'd ever wanted to experience again. The nightmare creatures that had attacked them when the spirit pathway had collapsed must have thought they had finished the job. He almost wished they had. When he finally could walk, he found his nail spear axe and prodded Sneeve with it. Wake up, boss, he said growling. We got a deadbeat to catch. world blurred at the edges of the path, but the gypsies and their temporary traveling companions did their best not to notice. It was not long after they passed another two spirit walkers with staves on either side of the road, and their mystic path became a regular road again. The sound of a rushing river came to the travelers' ears almost immediately. This was the mighty Lunasa, a river with its headwaters fed by the summer runoff from the cold wastes that neatly formed the eastern border of the kingdom of Lunargen. It was thick and swollen with spring rain and thaw water, but the gypsies were already turning towards a river road, leading north along its length. Peter was grinning as he saw the river, his spirits lifting for the first time in many days. He was exhausted, having had little sleep the night before. Arin rode up next to him. Raven was also tired, not disguising her yawn behind Peter in between bites of trail food. I wonder why you're grinning, Sarge, 
Or are you just loopy? Raven asked, her voice croaking. This, do you realize how far we just came? Oh, through the Spirit Walker's Road, you mean, Arryn said. Not nearly as far as the ride of Vela carried us just this last night, but I'd say, oh, half day at least, at full gallop. Surprised, are you? Peter grinned. Just means we're well away from that male army. Left them in the dust, we did. I thought for sure we were goners. Well, the gypsies would hardly be masters of the road if we didn't have the ability to get away from our predators, don't you think? I'd just be thinking about how nice it would be to have a gypsy cavalry force get us everywhere on time. <laughs> Heck, I'd even do some sweet technical movement without worrying about all those hours of marching and riding. Ah, but you see, Sarge, you're mistaken about that. Did we travel the spirit roads with war in our hearts, we would attract unwanted attention. The spirits of our unquiet, unremembered dead haunt the spirit pathways, seeking always to lure us away or destroy an angry or hate-filled heart. It behooves us, then, to have only peace and merriment among us. Are you telling me... That's why you and Joe are always drinking, dancing, and making merry. Did you have to? Just to get where you're going? Now, you know, I've never quite thought of it that way, and I wouldn't say either way. But I can tell you that there is little the Valisti do for one reason only. The escaping caravan came at last to a familiar, well-hidden campsite off the road, their wagons falling into old ruts and stopping in their customed places around the old fire pit in the center. This time, instead of building their camp separately, the mercenaries were invited to form camp alongside them, among them. This singular honor given to Gahe was not missed by Peter, but he said nothing of it. Raven pulled first guard duty and left, walking out a few cart lengths into the forest to take up watch. Alabar, who had already fallen asleep atop the caravan wagon Dov drove, was left where he was with a blanket on top of him. Gar turned to help the gypsies prepare the evening meal. He and Dov would sleep in their sturdy scouts' sleep cloaks. Aran greeted Chandra in his tent and went rummaging through it to find both festival clothes and his musical instruments. Sitting in the sun, he worked with deft fingers to tune them while Chandra watched fascinated. The sun was dying in the sky by the time Peter, with Dov helping, got his tent pitched. Peter found Mamza Lane stepping out of the green bower wagon and made a small bow to her. If it's all the same to you, Mamza Lane, I'd sooner catch some sack time than celebrate. As you wish, Sergeant, I will save some of the meal for you later. For now, take this camp bread. It's fresh and hot, and you look as though you're hungry. She took one of the loaves from her basket and turned to Corinne, who was emerging from the wagon behind her. Make sure no one disturbs Sergeant Peter while he sleeps, Corinne, she said pointedly, and was away in a flounce of her skirts. Peter didn't notice Corinne's smile and curtsy. By that point, he was already on his way to bed, munching the camp bread as he went. Raven was tired, but not that tired. 
not as tired as the rest, and had pulled first watch that night. The sun just passed beneath the trees in the distance. High on a tree perch, she watched the forest floor with eyes that could use the moon as easily as they could the sun. Breathing regularly and patiently, she soon assumed that half-awake, full-aware state of waiting and watching that was her Lunargenti father's blood gift. Several hours passed before her mind twitched to the change in a pattern beneath her. It did not take her long to recognize the pattern, to have words of explanation form in her brain, to come to full alertness and readiness. Knowing these two were dangerous, she decided to take a more aggressive stance with them. They hated having the drop made on them anyway. Well, hello there, Leonard, Raven said from her perch. Fancy meeting you here. You look like hell. What have you been up to? Leonard sniffed the air, and his feral eyes peered out through the dimness until he saw Raven. It is none of your business, Genza Brood. He gestured toward the circle of wagons lit by cheery campfire light in the near distance. We'll have words with your caravan, master. Raven used the tip of one of her Ravenclaw daggers to clean under her fingernails. Oh, I don't think so. You see, until this trip is over, I'm a guard here. Kind of like setting a dandy to watch the cat house, I know, but that's that. And while I'm guarding, guess what? You won't be having words with anyone. Sneeve stepped into the clearing. Ah, Leonard, I see you found a playmate. Well, if it isn't Sneeve, the bloomer sniffer. What are you doing up so far from home, Sneeve? Don't you have a stink shop to run? Sneeve growled, and his hand went to his Dracon pistol. A sharp pain in his gun hand surprised him so that he released a sudden cry. His hand had been struck by a dagger, not the sharp end, but the dull but still painful ball of its pommel. The blade flashed once and was back in Raven's hand before Sneeve finished his exclamation. I wouldn't draw that if I were you, Sneeve. As I was saying to Leonard here, this is my caravan. I'm guarding it, and that's that. We're just here to collect a debt. Or did you wish to pay Gold Pond's debt for him? It's quite considerable. 20,000 Blackpool tokens plus interest. Sneeve grinned fiercely. Raven smirked. Yeah, I, I got that on me. Look, I don't care what gambling debts the sergeants racked up in your stupid parlors. It's none of my concern. While he's on this trip, he's golden. If you touch him, I'll kill you without a thought. And I don't think the masters will miss you. It's not like you're the best boy these days, are you? Sneeve snorted and shook his head slowly. You have me in a disadvantage, obviously, Miss Raven. I will take your words under advisement in my preparations. It was in that moment that Sneeve dropped the blackout ball, and a cloud of utter inky darkness suddenly surrounded Leonard and himself. Moving without thinking, Raven threw her blade again, watching as the talon-hilt dagger flew through the air and was engulfed by the darkness leaving circular eddies in the smoky blackness as it went. 
She vaulted from her perch in the tree, grabbing a few lower limbs to break through her fall, and landed at the base, dodging quickly as a hyena man spear axe slammed into the tree bark next to her head. She grabbed the spear axe head quickly and kept it weighted down with her hand as she stepped forward with a flashing dagger in her other, the blade fitting between her first and second finger for maximum puncture. She took a step forward and slammed the blade home, finding a gap between the nail tongue's baldric and greaves. She artfully let go as she did, slammed it the rest of the way home with her knee. The hyena man felt his gut puncture all the way through, and the blade vanished out the other side of him, leaving behind the as-yet-undigested meal the warrior had eaten the night before. She whirled to face Sneeve now as Leonard fell off to the side, his spear axe still in Raven's left hand. Ginza had taught her never to relax, to always be ready for the next attack. She had to move quickly if she wanted to survive. She swung the spear axe wildly at the dark cloud in front of her, feeling it strike home in a meaty bite when she swept the ground with it. She twisted and forced the blade over so that the little rat man, Sneeve, was pushed out of the cloud, the blade still biting through his left thigh. Whore's daughter! Malthus damn brick, you're a bitch from hell! Sneeze cursed at her. Ah, Sneeze, you say the sweetest things. I told you to leave us alone. Should have listened, she said, breathing hard. She wrenched the spear axe free and, flinging it aside, brought her dagger up to end him. You forget, though, the masters, Sneeve said, coughing, grinning. They pay their people well. He held up his own hand, and the sign of the Ouroboros was there, the sign Raven knew so well on so many of the thugs she'd fought before. Life bond, damn it! She felt the cold hand of fear clench her heart and knew that she was suddenly in over her head. And that was when Leonard swiped at her from behind, his growl intense, his filthy talons scratching her, pushing her aside, knocking her down. Sneeve laughed viciously as he stepped forward, and Raven felt sick as she saw his leg healing of itself, his gut wound repairing itself. Came a sound from everywhere and nowhere at once. A chord sung but also reverberated throughout the clearing. The sound seemed to crystallize around Raven, around Leonard, and around Sneeve, locking them in place, frozen, unable to move. The paralysis was as immediate as it was total. In fact, Sneeve fell over, stiffly, because he was in the middle of a maneuver which would have gained him his Dracon pistol, had he use of his fingers. A pair of boots stepped down the path then, making little sound. Raven felt the power that held her, and was instantly starting the mind exercises her mother had taught her to break charms, but so far, none of them had worked. Good greetings. I'm guessing you're the person these villains are looking to kill. Raven tried to even move her eyes but could not, but still managed to somehow give off the appropriate air of frustration. Only her breath and her heart had not ceased movement. Ah, yes, sorry. You can't move. The Lethean chant has you. Lethean, like stone, see? If I release you, you must promise not to attempt to kill me. Do we have a deal? 
Breathe hard once for yes, twice for no. She breathed out a long, slow sigh. Very well, then, he said, touching her forehead, and suddenly her muscles unlocked and she was able to move again. Raven's daggers flashed into her palms, and she made a move to attack the hyena man instantly, but with one syllable again, the man held her fast. Oh, well, um, I'd prefer you not to kill them, either. At least not while you have the advantage. Until I sort things out, okay? Raven breathed out slowly, raggedly, feeling her heart racing. He touched her forehead again, and she was able to move once more. That is very annoying, whatever power it is. That? A <laughs> minor pish. Something even the smallest Leah Lee could do. Lothus, thrice damned tits. You're a bard! Corwin Winsinger. Master bard of the Silver Grove Collegium, my lady. I am at your service, the man said, sweeping off his cap in a long and dramatic bow. "'What are you doing here?' Raven asked, exasperatedly. "'It's not like there's a tavern that's open within a day's ride of here. "'Playing music is just one part of my vocation. "'You are... "'Lady Crow?' he said, focusing in her direction. "'Raven. "'Look, these guys mean me and mine harm, "'and they have the stink of the masters on them, "'and what's more, they've got some kind of nasty blood magic tattoo "'that keeps them alive.' Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in being hounded to the ends of the world by these guys, so if it's all the same to you, I'd like to set them on fire and have done. I could no more allow you to do that than I could allow them to attack you while you were defenseless. It's not just that it would be against the balance. It isn't even a decision on my part. If that was my intent, the power of the chant would not work. Okay, fine. Can you do some sort of bardic thing to them? I don't know. Get them distracted. Fall asleep. Make them fall in love with each other. Corin looked at the two gangsters. They already do, I think, or in their narrowly defined version of what love is, at least. Okay, that was not something I wanted to know. And I think they will probably want to kill you now, too. They would, if they could remember what happened. Now... If you will take me to your camp, I will be glad to make sure that doesn't happen. You're going to leave them wandering around out here. They'll find us eventually. Perhaps, but it won't be for many, many days. They have to walk the road and sleep a night in their own home before they can start again. Raven stopped. Wow, you can do that? I can, and in this instance, I may. Raven grinned. May I watch? It took a surprisingly small amount of time, and Raven smiled as she watched the muddled, confused, forgetful gangsters begin their trek home, muttering to themselves. She turned to Corwin. Say, would you like to have a drink before you go on your way? I think the gypsies have some food left over, too. Judging by the moon, it's the end of my shift. I need to go back to camp, anyway. Of course, I would be pleased to claim guestship. Many thanks, Corwin said, bowing. (music) 
Peter's tent was nowhere near as sumptuous as Aaron's, but it was sturdy and functional. He'd splurged at the tent cellars when he'd survived a particularly difficult caravan ride as second-in-command, and had never been displeased at the result. The canvas tent was easy to put up and roomy, held off the rain and wind, and even had little bells sewn into the door flap to announce visitors if he wanted. The sun had long since fled the sky, and now those little bells jingled a little. Peter's hand went down to the loaded crossbow at his side, while he futzed a mage light on and focused its glow on the door. Corinne stood in the darkness there. She held a finger to her lips quietly, her eyes wide and nervous. She slowly knelt down at his side and pushed aside his crossbow, carefully. She breathed long and slow, like a tiger caught in a trap, and Peter felt his skin shiver all at once. What are you? Shh, she said, laying her finger on his mouth. Her lips touched his softly, yet another surprise in the dark, and it melted Peter's soul. He could not remember the last time he had felt such tenderness. Maybe he'd never had. No, it was only the cynical embraces of Red Lantern girls, or the fickle, furtive hugs given by country women. Nothing so completely lacking in pretense, nothing so womanly, nothing so perfectly feminine and powerful and all-consuming. The kiss went on. Peter could not stop it, would not stop it. Her dress rustled as she moved to take it off and Peter took her hand. No, just one kiss more, and say goodnight, he whispered. Fool, foolish Kai, you do not know what you say. I know. Then go kiss your horse, Kai, because that is all you'll get this. Peter took her into his arms, kissing her passionately, and unshuttered for a moment the fire of months and months, and years of loneliness, desire, and lonely longing that he carried. She was touched deeply by his fire, touched so deeply that she shuddered from it. But then it was over, and Peter released her. Good night, Miss Corinne, he said quietly. Good night, foolish Cahay, she said. Her anger had subsided somewhat, though she turned quickly and vanished, just as silently as she had arrived. Peter fell back onto his pallet, his blood hot, and shook his head in disbelief to himself. Aaron's fingers move lightly across the fretboard of his lute. He bent in over his fingers with a studied but smiling confidence, the tune pouring out of his hands and thrumming the night air all around him, as hands were moved to clap and feet were moved to dance. Gone were the troubles of the day, gone were the battle wounds, gone was the smell of smoke, the blood of madmen. In the circle of light around the fire, Aaron reigned supreme calling the dance to scroll around him endlessly. Calling the dance to heal his friend, Chandra, who sat across from him, smiling. 
It was as if he were made for this moment, as if he were the center of a whirlwind of color and strong legs. The song came to a stop, but a few beats of the drums called for a new one to begin right after, and he bent to his music case to pull out the violin there, tuned and ready, and curled immediately into a gypsy reel that set the dancers in motion again. This is where Aaron felt his true self, though it was only these times when he performed for an audience that he realized it. All the years of practice at his aunt's and uncle's knees had paid off. He was no longer aping them, no longer pretending to be a musician. He was a musician, and the music moved through him just as easily as he pushed out breath. Sometimes the patterns of the dancers called to him, and he made his instrument sing back to that pattern. Sometimes the hearts beating around him were undeniably moved to a change in cadence, a change in timbre, and he followed right along. It wasn't until he heard a high, skirling penny whistle above all his music that he was broken from his trance. The whistle matched his tones and blended with them, and then created a counterpoint melody that danced with his own. And the man, a dark-haired man, true, but a Lunargenti, who played the whistle, was more than proficient with its use. He was a master, it was true. The music was so beautiful that even the Velisti applauded this Gaihe, this interloper to the circle. Raven, standing beside him, meant that she had somehow found and brought this one in. Maybe he was a traveler along the borderlands of Lunargen. But he was a musician in his circle, and he must be challenged, Arn thought. He grinned and stood, facing the piper, and began to play his fiddle back at him, matching him phrase for phrase. They went back and forth like this a little, but soon fell back into a tune for dancing, for neither of them could resist the call of the beating hearts around them. It was in that moment that Arn felt that this Lunargen, this mysterious stranger, was more than he seemed. In fact, the man was making him sound better than he'd ever sounded before, just by filling in his notes and supporting them, allowing him to take the lead and to set the stance. It was exhilarating and frightening. He saw that the other members of the tribe did not understand what they were hearing. To their ears, it was all just pretty tunes. But to his, and to his mind as a musician, this man was a master. Then... He took out his harp, and Arin his shield drum, and he proved the master in that as well. Wine cups overflowed and drained in equal number. The world seemed to be yearning, reaching up to the night sky, dancing with the moon overhead. Arin took out his Kal'il, the Amishkin horn that he had, and played it for the Wunjo present. A long, sweet, slow, golden honey torrent poured into their ears. Then the man, who had introduced himself as Corwin, produced a Vahar flute from Amishka, and played a dancing tunes that had the ladies flinging off their veils and spinning like the dancers of Sedan and Jarek did. Each note of the Vahar set their hips to shaking and their fingers snapping, and Arin followed with a woodblock and zithers, turning the camp into a little palace of Amishka in the midst of the forest. The Lunar Genti followed this up with a deceptively simple romantic ballad of Jesquan, calling to mind the canals, 
and brilliant lights of that most beautiful of cities. Arun followed that with a song about Naha, the Forsaken, a bittersweet tale about the death of her life's love, a favorite among young Velisti men, because the story beneath had poor Naha dying a virgin because she waited too long to take a lover. Arun's smoky eyes caught Corinne's across the way. She seemed disconfit, but she had joined the fire of her own will, and now looked back at him without prejudice, without pretense, but full of nothing but her attention for his words. When he was finished with the song, she claimed the right of thanks, and stepped forward immediately. Taking Arun into her arms, she kissed him boldly and passionately in front of the entire tribe. There was applause and yells in support of the woman, and even the woman's circle seemed to approve, although Mom's Elaine's face remained unreadable. No one saw in the shadows, but Chandra had to look away. Get ship for the loony, Karsta Smith said, toasting him with another wine cup. Anyone who could play like that is welcome at our fire. I thank you, first people. I would but tarry a time with you on my travels, if it please you. The applause and calls for more music were all he had for an answer, but that was enough. Arn shook his head and tried desperately to shake the feeling that this man somehow meant his doom. He tipped back another cup of wine and felt the apprehension fade away as the music started again. You've been listening to Heart of the Hunter, a Coronai Chronicles story. Heart of the Hunter is brought to you by the Fireheart Foundry family of podcasts. Fireheart Foundry also produces Fledgling, a Leaden Universe science fiction novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. The Bears Grove Podcast. Dragon Kid, the podcast for kids and gaming. The Square One Podcast, and Vibrant Living. Find out more about the Fireheart Foundry at fireheartfoundry.com. This podcast is brought to you under a Creative Commons attribution, no derivatives, no commercial use, license 2.5. Music is provided by the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening, and we invite you back to our fire real soon.